This is part two of a two-part special on the fire department of New York. It was like, what happens at work stays at work. What happens at home stays at home. Never should let the two meet. Never should let the two influence your performance in the other arena. That sounds great. It's complete bullshit, right? From a scientific or psychological perspective, we are who we are, right? And what I happens at home, I bring that to work. And it, it's just been super helpful. When people come afterwards to talk to me, half of the questions are, I wonder, you know, how this could help me in my relationship, or how this could help me be a better father, or a better mother, or a better parent. So why is it that to be so damn tough? You know, mental performance is important to me in ways that I didn't even know possible as a father or as a husband. So damn we designed it in 2015, and we introduced it to the FDNY in, in late 2015, and they they embraced it. We rolled it out in 2016. So we're, we're four years plus into this initiative. And when I first created it, I was a firefighter, meaning I wasn't an officer. And I thought the program was really important. I was uh, single and not a parent. So fast forward four years, I'm, I'm an officer. So when I go to work, I'm in charge of a number of young guys and gals, many of them you know, super motivated, not really much in the way of experience. And I'm married and I have a toddler. So, you know, mental performance is important to me in ways that I didn't even know possible in 2016. And I certainly am not always the best version of myself as a father or as a husband, but kind of the thinking, the process, the skills, the approach, it's all transferable. It's all portable. Like I know if I get something in exchange wrong with my, with my wife, which happens more frequently than I probably would like, or even my daughter, my, you know, my daughter's in meltdown and I respond in a way that's probably not necessarily the best version of, of myself. It's kind of like back to the drawing board and I, I largely use the same type of thinking, the same process, the same approach, the same skills that I do when I think about what, firefighting. Of course, the language, the language is a little different, right? And the empathy required is, you know, like on an emotional level, it's, it's very different, but procedurally, it's very, very similar. And I think that one of the reasons I've been able to kind of excel in my personal life in a way that I, I hadn't pre-MPI is because of, and I, and I mean at home, I mean my relationship with my wife and I mean my relationship with my daughter is in large part to what I have learned from MPI. And I know that every time I go to work where I'm a better version of myself at home, I come into work much more balanced than if I come into work flustered or frustrated from things at home. And I know historically, particularly in the New York City Fire Department, you know, a historically kind of like Irish Catholic, tough organization made up of largely immigrants that, you know, just had a very, very tough, stoic mindset. It was like, what happens at work stays at work. What happens at home stays at home. Never should the two meet. Never should the two influence your performance in the other arena. That sounds great. It's complete bullshit, right? From a scientific or psychological perspective, we are who we are, right? And what I happens at home, I bring that to work. And it, it's just been super helpful. I assume you saw the same thing in like deployment versus coming home, right? Like you can pretend that you can keep them apart, but they affect each other, I would assume. Yeah, and I would argue 
I don't think I'm unique in this regard because a lot of the guys I went to war with feel the same way. A lot of guys that I work with in the fire department feel the same way. Sometimes the stress that we experience at work, though, it, it gains a lot of popularity and attention in the media and in the literature and in film, etc. Yeah, it's it's important, right? Because arguably we're we're risking our lives for others. But I I would actually argue that it's actually easier to manage and navigate than it is the stress that's associated with responsibilities at home, right? Whether it be you know, members of your family that are sick, economic hardship, turmoil in your relationship, you know, a, a recent miscarriage. I mean, you you name it. I mean, I always say like, I have a buddy, one of my close best friends in the whole world, the Navy SEAL commander, one of my peers who I have great admiration for. He says like, say a day where all four of my kids are throwing a temper tantrum versus a, the toughest patrol, you know, or toughest mission with a SEAL team. Like I'm... <laughs> I'm probably going to tell you that the mission with the SEAL team is less stressful than the day where all four, <laughs> all four of my kids just happen to be on the backside of the curve. Like, and I, I think that's true for, for many professionals and like in this line of work. And I, I do. I, I know that a lot of guys have benefited. I mean, they, they lead with like, hey, this is making me a better firefighter and fire officer. And that's what they talk about at work. But I know on a personal level, a lot of guys have, have benefited from the program and the resources that we've been able to tap into, you know, folks like Fader have been super, super helpful. And I, I think at the end of the day, it'd be interesting to see what Fader has to offer. But I think I'm borrowing this mantra from the Cubs, but the mantra is better people make better baseball players or better people make better athletes. And at the end of the day, that's what we, we all want to be, right? You know, whether we're New York City firefighters, U.S. Marines, we just want to be better people and better stewards of society. Yeah, I, 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 it actually made me think it, to ask that question that kicked you off on that because you were describing some of the exercises and how it helped in some ways and I was vividly reminded of a player I worked with way back in my journey at New, in New Zealand in their international cricket team and he's gone to do great things in the Premier League in India and you know, these guys, of all the sports I've worked with, that's about as close to deployment as you get. They go away for three to six months at a time, staying in places where they have to have armed guards all the time. And when we were maybe a year or two into it, Brendan Cullum, I remember him turning to me and saying, you know, man, this has really helped. And I thought he was referring to his cricket, which he'd taken off. And I was like, yeah, that's cool, man. I noticed you've been much more calm at the crease and you've been better in leadership meetings, like a better captain. And he's like, that's not what I'm talking about. Like my wife and my new baby are over there and I've been a better father than I could ever have imagined two years ago when we started this. And it just, you know, I still even get a little goosebumpy now talking about it, but it's, I immediately thought of it when you were telling that story before. Fader, you, I hadn't even thought of this, it's coming to me right now, but you wrote a book called Life is Sport or Life as Sport. Life as Sport, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm super passionate about this concept of transferable skills. You know, one of the reasons I wrote Life as Sport is because as Jason's talking about, whether we're talking to firefighters or talking to NFL players or I'm in a business setting and we're talking about high performance there, you know, basically when people come afterwards to talk to me, half of the questions are, I wonder, you know, how this could help me in my relationship or how this could help me be a better father or a better mother or a better parent. And, you know, I, I believe truly that life's a sport in the sense that, you know, you're playing, but you're playing for much higher stakes. You're playing for love and you're playing for connection and you're playing for family, which to most people are the most important thing. That is the most important game, if you will. And so I, I totally believe these abilities are transferable. And often we have the worst filter at home. Like if you think about, you know, at work, you know, you're usually able 
Okay, maybe maybe in the firehouse there's a little bit different norm, but you're usually able to not curse. Like you can, you have a good filter. You're you're able to control things. You know, like you can think about how we treat our loved ones compared to how we work, we act at work. At home, we let our filter go to go away basically. And so being able to learn ways to to stay calm, to even focus on task relevant cues, you know, in parenting, I think is for me personally. You know, I, what, I, what would I, add a curiosity from someone who's not a parent? What would a task relevant cue be when your four kids are on, as Jason, you said, they're on the backside of the curve? Like, what is a task relevant cue when you ta- totally relevant, lost control? Yeah, the task relevant cue there is your frustration, right? We think, that, we think that the cue that we should be paying attention to is what our kids are doing. That's kind of irrelevant. What's, what's most important, I'll, you know, I'll tell you a quick story is where I like my younger daughter used to torture my older daughter. By, <laughs> like making out with her. She would just grab her and like just start. My younger daughter was like four. My other daughter was like teenager. And this would like get her so frustrated. And she'd run up and grab her and kind of like attack, kiss her. And so I was giving my younger daughter a timeout. And I, I took her, I said, listen, you're going to get a timeout. And I picked her up. I took over and I was frustrated. And I was like, you got to stop doing that. You're not listening to your sister. You're making her mad. And I'm talking to her. And you know, I'm, I'm not yelling, but my voice sounded irritated. And I put her down in her timeout for a couple of minutes and she came out. I was like, okay, so what do, you, what do you think you could do differently? And why did you get that timeout? She said, because you were mad. <laughs> <laughs> she, there's no learning. And so what I mean is, you know, if we're doing anything out of frustration in our relationship, it's likely not going to work. So the most relevant cue is where am I? Am I like red light, yellow light, or green light in terms of should I be even having this conversation right now? And if I'm yellow or red, you know what? I need the skills to be able to calm myself down in that situation or even just the recognition. Forget about the skills. Getting better at self-awareness. To know I'm in like a yellow light or a red light situation here. I need to remove myself so that I can be a parent. You know, 50% of conflict, I think, at home is just because we don't realize that we're getting so irritated that we, we're operating with our monkey brain. Right. And I can see that totally being the, the great, very tangible red light, yellow light, green light thing. So whether I'm ready for a conversation or not is I'm immediately thinking, Jason, of I'm a leader of a patrol or I'm a leader of a fire engine and someone's just done, you know, Sally's just done the wrong thing or Jason's just screwed up over here and i got to get at it because someone's going to die if they do it again. But that knowing whether you're red, yellow or green is probably the exact same skill Jonathan's just applied there to parenting applies to being a good leader. Fair or unfair? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, when we introduced a greater understanding in the FDNY and uh, created a, a language that was tactically acceptable, consistent with our kind of culture, I think we just all, everyone could visualize the curve. When I say the curve, I mean the York Seas Dotson upside down U curve. And, you know, it, it's, uh, so we say like, yeah, I was right at center, meaning I was over, over arousing that moment, right? I was, I was red, right? I was, I was right at center. And I think that, the more time that I've spent thinking about it and, and putting it into action, oftentimes I actually try to like in that moment, stop, right. And just try to like visualize where I am on that, on that curve. And usually if I'm frustrated, right. Or I'm at risk of being a suboptimal performer, right. Or having a suboptimal conversation or being a suboptimal leader. It's generally not because I'm left. It's not because I'm under aroused. It's because I'm well, right. at center. And then I need to dial it back, right? I need to get, get into that sweet spot. And I think one of the things that, and I'm certainly far from perfect, I have a long way to go, but one of the things I've been able to do over time is to 
reduce the amount of time that I spend right of center if I do go right of center. But I think that that sometimes is like, and I think it comes from Viktor Frankl, right? But the, the significance of sometimes putting time between the stimulus and our response, response. right? You're talking about, I mean, who, who navigated greater stress, right? Or, or pressure than, than Frankl did. Not too many folks, right? But the ability to sometimes just put time between the stimulus and your response. And I think, you know, doing everything you can to kind of over, over time reduce that, that time. You are listening to Toughness, and if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... What makes things difficult to operate in a team is fear. We fear being blamed or criticized. So damn For those who aren't aware of Viktor Frankl, author of a fantastic book called Man's Search for Meaning, but in particular is the reason he was so, the book is so incredible is it, it relates his experience as a psychologist, but also as a prisoner in Nazi Germany, in a, in a prisoner of war camp. And he's famous for a couple of lines. One is between stimulus and response, there's a space. And that's where you need to be to choose who you want to be. But secondly, that he who has a great why to live will be able to bear any how and think about the how that he bore as a prisoner of war in Nazi Germany. And that brings me to a question that kind of combines a couple of things that we've just spoken about. One was, Fader, you talked about the importance of connection. Like it's, it's one of the biggest needs, perhaps the biggest needs of humans, right? Definitely, it's the antidote to depression. So loneliness is the biggest associated with depression. And if we're well connected, it tends to ward it off. And likewise, it's something that we look for as a positive, not just as a defense. But Jason, I mean, both of you also spoke about being prepared for these events so that we don't go into red, green. Sorry, we don't go into red and we stay in yellow or green by being clear on what we do and what our cues are, right? Long-winded wind up, but here's the question. Is there a way that you can be prepared so that you don't get to a red in a relationship point of view, whether it's life as sport at home or whether it's with a colleague or as a leader. Are there things that you teach in some of the MPI stuff that's about connecting and building connection over time in advance as a buffer so that when we get into a hot spot, it's not as bad? Yeah, absolutely. I, I often communicate to leaders because as, as a company officer, right, like I go to work, I'm in charge of a, an engine company or a ladder company or a rescue company. And I have the unique unique responsibility. It's similar to being a platoon commander in an infantry unit. I'm actually a player coach. And one of the things we know about player coaches is there aren't too many, right, in any professional sport domain. And the reason there aren't too many is because it's really hard to actually be be good and be effective, right? There arguably there have been a couple in pro baseball, folks that were Hall of Fame athletes, but they weren't actually very good in terms of wearing both hats at the same time. So when you go to these fires and emergencies, you're actually, you're playing, the, you're competing, but you're also leading. You're responsible for, for not only like maintaining awareness around your own performance, but also performance of your subordinates, right? In a, in a tactically lethal environment. So it, it's imperative then for me to not only understand kind of where I'm at on the curve, right? And the curve works for me, right? For others, it might be the, uh, the traffic light scheme, right? But the curve works for me. But it's also imperative for me to know where my subordinates are at on the curve. And actually sometimes too, where the incident commander is on the curve. And sometimes really like 
and this has been the product of, of MPI for me and my work with Fader and so many others is just even sometimes having the awareness that how I message my superior commander or my subordinates will influence where they go on the curve next. Same is true at home, right? If I want to have a particularly hard, challenging conversation with my wife, just knowing how I preface it, how I message it, the language that I use, the tone that I use, my body language is may, might be the difference between her staying centered on the curve and me pushing her right. It's easy if she goes right to say, well, you lost your composure, but I'm also somewhat complicit and responsible for that. So that, that, that relationship piece and just thinking about, hey, if somebody's right of center, what can I do to help them dial it, dial it back? You know, like I say, very rarely, particularly in highly competitive endeavors, do we have folks that spend their, a lot of time left of center in what, what we call the complacent range, where we just have to say, hey, look, man, like, it's time to, to dial it up. Generally, it, it's the other way, where folks are so motivated, they're so inspired, they're so ambitious, you actually have to have them help them dial it back. Yeah. And so, Fader, to you as well, like talking about being prepared in advance or almost putting money in the relationship bank account so that when you make a withdrawal, it doesn't go into deficit. Like, what are some things that you, that you might teach there to either pro athletes or fire department operators to be able to help build that up in advance so that they're, they've got a tougher relationship that can stand longer? I mean, as you said, Patty, you know, connection is the magic elixir of performance in a team. You know, the, Jason has brought Sebastian Younger, who is the author of the book Tribe, to talk and, you know, consult as part of the FDNY initiative. And, you know, that book is all about how, you know, people crave that connection. And when they lose it, they want to go back to it, even if it means going back to a very, an environment with a lot of friction. So we know that about people. And, you know, my perception of this is basically that what makes things difficult to operate in a team is fear. We fear being blamed or criticized. That's just a very natural thing that humans fear. We fear blame and criticism because it's deeply rooted in us. If we were criticized or blamed as part of an ancient tribe, we would be exiled. And if we were exiled, we'd be killed. And so we're walking around trying to not get blamed and criticized. And we're willing to do a lot to not do that. And so what helps with that is the development of what a lot of thinkers call psychological safety. And what that means basically is creating an environment in which I feel that I can say what's on my mind and I won't be criticized. If that environment doesn't operate, I mean, one of the biggest, you know, learning about this is, is aircraft disaster. Almost every aircraft disaster results in a missing of particular data. And oftentimes it's because a junior person has said, hey, listen, is something going wrong here? But doesn't feel enough confidence, enough psychological safety to be able to really call out and say, hey, wait, this is going the wrong way. And so what I found to be helpful for that and what, what most thinking is, is creating experiences for people in which they can actually simply share who they are. Now, the, the trick to this is that once you start to do that, it seems really corny. So you got to find a way to do it that works. What I found actually to, what I found to be like really helpful there is to create an environment where people can actually just talk about what their experience has been. So I think the first step to that is what like the Navy SEALs do is after they have an operation, they come back and they debrief. They talk about like, okay, this is what I saw. This is what I felt, right? And, and so that, that's a very basic way that people can do it. But I mean, leading up to higher ways is which where people share more about what's going on in their lives. Can you give us an example of a question you might use to set that up? Because it, it might be a nice way to finish it. People can go and start this conversation themselves. Like, 
we kind of played around at start or how you know jason how do you meet photo and how did i meet photo and like a little bit personal is it, are you talking about that or are you talking about going deeper well i think you know you have to start wherever people are comfortable so i'll give an example i mean one exercise i've done with teams um is where i have people you know shout out what they saw other people do well right because we're so focused on you know as as jason and i talk about if something goes wrong we talk about it endlessly it's, this is true in football or in fire department if something goes wrong there's like you know if something goes wrong in a football team you know as you know working with the eagles in my experience with the giants you're, the team's going to watch tape for like you know the entire week if, if something goes right they, we don't spend a lot of time like thinking about why it went right and so i think you know just having a group where people sit around after a particular event and say like, hey, this is one thing I think that went well, this person did this, right? That's an example of developing psychological safety because your team members all of a sudden realize, oh shoot, like that person saw me and respected me and valued me. And you know, I mean, there's this kind of joke like in a lot of locker rooms where people say, like if someone says, I love you, it's kind of like, I love you, F you, man. Like there's uncomfortability with that, right? But finding a way to point out like what we see that's positive can actually help to build that trust and connection. Yeah. And, you know, so I think that's one of the things I think that, that teams can do to develop that and, and think about how that can be done based on what the level of comfort is with that particular unit or group. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned culture at the start, Jason, as a, like you say, not many people put a lot of thought into how it develops, but definitely locker room cultures in the old days, you would get to know people and get that vulnerability and acceptance through drinking games and through stories that were told out at night and all that sort of stuff. Is there any parallels to that in military or fire where, where there is a cultural development of those relationships or does it, does it need to be more intentional? I think the fire service has a leg up on the military in this regard because the military, everyone's almost in a perpetual state of motion. Right, you go to a unit, you're there for two years, you move on, you get a new commander, you get a new sergeant major. I mean, everyone is you're just constantly in flux, whereas in a firehouse, you tend to be there for several years. I mean, it's kind of like probably more consistent with what pro sport was before the explosion and free agency, mm-hmm. right? Where you, you would kind of be with the same team and the same teammates. And then you also develop some meaningful relationships oftentimes outside of work. Right. You have social events, your wives come, your kids grew up together and you're kind of navigating the challenges like multiple guys are, you know, kind of navigating pregnancy. Right. Their wives are pregnant at the same time. They bring kids into this world at the same time. They're coming to work sleep deprived at the same time. But I think one of the one of the best ways to get people to be more vulnerable with each other, because I think that's really, in essence, what Fader's speaking to, and that's really tough in tactically-minded elite organizations where people pride themselves on being tough, right, is to just get people outside of their comfort zone. Sometimes it comes in the form of training. Sometimes it comes in the form of a, of a weekend camping expedition. Sometimes it comes in the form of doing a, a tough mutter or a Spartan race. Because when you, when you do something of, of that nature, every, you're going to quickly find, like, that no one is strong across the board, right? And that, that's true in all elite teams. That's true in, for guys in rescue too. That's true for guys in, in the SEAL teams. It's certainly true for guys in the, in the Marine Corps infantry. Like you're going to try to you're gonna quickly identify where people's strengths and weaknesses are. And quickly in those moments of discomfort, you become increasingly reliant on those, those around you. And the, rea- the reality is like you can't hide it, right? I mean, we're, we've all been guilty sometimes of, of, of kind of hiding it and hoping it, that our, 
our inadequacies wouldn't surface. Um, and then we often run the risk sometimes of overcompensating for it and we quickly get called out for it. I think everything comes down to like connection and, and relationships. Like once, once we have a relationship, I mean, Fader and I are able to have like really thought provoking conversations where we challenge each other, both professionally and personally, because we kind of know we're operating somewhat of a, we operate in a, in a safe space. You know, we have a really, really strong relationship and connection and we just seek for each other to be better versions of ourselves. And I think we're, we're probably, you know, more aware of each other's blind spots than any other people that we, that we know are and yeah. uh, we benefit from that. It reminds me of a mentor of mine back in Australia who first probably set me on this path. And we were working with elite teams and he said, you know, the bit we were talking about what's the difference between a great team and an okay team. He said, here's the, here's the real deal. The most elite teams, like the highest performing environments, are absolutely brutal when it comes to accountability and absolutely loving when it comes to care. And they both exist at the same time because that means you can be brutal without anyone feeling butter or running away. So they're able to get better faster and hold higher standards. Years ago, I would have said that the, the key from like social sciences, behavioral sciences in terms of resources to taking teams, great teams and great performance to the next level, lighting, neuroscience, cognitive psychology, et cetera. Now I'm of the belief it actually lies in like emotional and social intelligence, right? It's like the guys like the Dan Coyles out there, right? Like folks have helped us to gain a better understanding of just how important those, those aspects of performance of really connection are to make us even better performers. And really of life as we've already spoken about there. I think that's a good place to wind it up. I want to thank you both for your time. Jason, especially thank you for your service in so many ways, both overseas and also at home. And thank you both for the amazing work you're doing, pioneering a program as important as MPI with Fire Department in New York. And hopefully that's the first of many similar programs at elite level tactical environments. So thanks again for your time. For, for listeners who want to find uh, either of you, what do they do besides Google your name? Where's the best spot to find you, Fader? They search for your book on Amazon. Are you on uh, Instagram, you Twitter? What do we do? You can find Life is Board on Amazon. And you can find me and contact me at jonathanfader.com. All right. There you go. You got your own website. Love it. Jason, anything similar for you? You could find me and contact me through www.leadershipunderfire.com. Perfect. Thank you again, guys. This has been an amazing. I said it was going to be an extra special episode, and it certainly did up for that. So I appreciate you getting on and look forward to talking again in the track. Cheers. Shades on.